Fresh Economic Thinking podcast, new ideas and analysis with Dr. Cameron Murray and Jonathan Gadir. Welcome back to the Fresh Economic Thinking podcast. You're with Cameron Murray and here today I have a special guest, guest uh, Leith Van Onselen, Chief Economist at Macro Business. I wanted to bring Leith here today to talk about immigration. Since COVID, Australia, Canada, the UK, New Zealand, and many places have seen record high immigration after a, a very quiet two years during COVID lockdowns. Canada is looking at capping international student numbers, and a recent Australian Universities Accord interim report flagged the idea to tax international student fees in Australia. Leith has been following uh, this topic for many years. Uh, Leith, it's great to have you here. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, cheers, Cameron. Any time, mate. Leith and I have uh, written together about this topic in the past, and we've written at Macro Business, where Leith is now the chief economist. So there's a long history here. Perhaps, Leith, you could start by telling us, how did you start participating in immigration debates? Because although this current spike in the rate of immigration in many countries seems new, and in the news we always focus on what's happening now, it's not new for you. Where did you start and 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 how did we get from there to here? Yeah, well, actually, it goes back almost 20 years, would you believe? So about uh, literally 20 years ago uh, this year, I started at the Australian Treasury and uh, I was basically indoctrinated into their three P's program. So I remember when I, you know, when you start there, you get, you have a, uh, you know, an orientation sort of thing. And that was me and a whole bunch of other new recruits. And uh, Ken Henry at the time, he was the secretary, got up there and basically, um, you know, espoused Treasury's three P's framework. So basically the whole framework is, um, if you want to improve Australia's welfare, you need to follow the three P's, which is productivity, participation, and population. And um, and at the time, you know, it seemed to make sense. Uh, at the time, Australia's net overseas migration was, it was about 120,000 uh, thereabouts uh, in the in the early 2000s or 2003 before it ramped up. And uh, you know, we didn't have all the population problems we've got now, etc. And and there was a you know, it was sort of sold to us at the time that we need highly skilled migration. And um, that sort of kicked the ball, uh, got the ball ball rolling. And then obviously worked at Treasury for about three years, came back to Melbourne in 2006, and then experienced obviously the biggest population boom I'd ever seen. Like Melbourne just went nuts. Um, you know, we basically grew the fastest out of all the states. And um, it was only really at macro business. So I started macro business uh, with um, a couple other guys in 2010 and went full time in 2011. It was about 2013 when I started writing about the population issue and it, was really in response. I remember. I remember the exact article. It was basically um, a guy called Rob Rob Burgess. He used to write for Business Spectator and then also New Daily. Wrote this long winded article on how Australia is this miracle economy, and uh, mm-hmm. basically how we just you know we're recession proof and we're just this you know fantastic amazing economy. Blah blah blah. And I remember looking at the data and I was just like, hang on, per capita GDP is not that great. We've had multiple you know. GDP recessions, and I think at the time in uh, 2000, well, I think we were right in the middle of a per capita recession, or there, or very close. So I wrote a response to it, and then he wrote one back, and then I wrote one back, and then it became sort of I just started looking more and more into it, and uh, basically I've spent ten years crusading against this really high immigration program that we've run pretty much since 2005, which is when it really started to take off, and then obviously 
the last uh, the last year has just been off the charts. Um, you know, Australia averaged about uh, eighty five to ninety thousand net overseas migration in sixty years post World War Two, and then mm-hmm. from mid two thousands it basically went up by about one hundred and you know thirty percent or something, uh, and it went to really so high you, levels. When you and say one hundred and thirty percent, you're saying double plus point three. Yes, basically. Yeah. So so um, so basically the you know the fifteen years leading up to uh, I think it was 2005. We averaged. Um, I'm going off memory here. Yep. About uh, it was about it was about you know hundred thousand or ninety ninety something thousand ninety five thousand I think by memory. And then the 15 years before the pandemic, we went we averaged 220. And then obviously oh, we right. had the dip during the pen. Uh, and then obviously we had the dip during the pandemic. And then now we're we've got net overseas migration running about half a million. And we're obviously seeing the problems manifest most visibly in the rental market. Uh, where yeah. you know rental vacancy rates are down at 0.9 percent across the capital cities it's you know never before seen well may, may, maybe it was seen you know post world war ii sort of thing but in, in anyone's lifetime living lifetime now it's unseen and uh, and obviously we've got all the problems you know people living in cars and um increase in homelessness more people being forced to live in group housing financial stress blah 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 and, and, I, and I actually see it so i live in a pretty wealthy nice area in melbourne called ashburton which is basically the it's it's basically the worst suburb, but in the best, uh, the most expensive um, local government area. So I'm su- surrounded by you know rich suburbs, but I'm the worst suburb of that rich rich area. And it's really you know, heaps of parklands, and it's really nice. Um, yep. And I notice that when I go for runs and stuff now, there's now people living in their cars uh, at the local at the we've got this massive uh, series of parks, and you know you see it now, and it's just like bloody hell, I've never seen this before in Melbourne. Oh, sorry, not in my patch of Melbourne. Yeah, and um, you know, and and I and I've sp- spoken to people. There's a, there was a family at my daughter's uh, primary school, which she left last year. She turned uh, went to high school, but there was a family I heard about, which was just a, a typical middle class family, or whatever. They suddenly got booted out of their rental accommodation, and they were absolutely panicking, couldn't get a house, had to move in with their parents, and all this sort of stuff. And this is in a sort of nice middle upper middle class area, and um, you know, and and I just you hear it all the time now that there's just this gaping. Uh, rental crisis developing with not enough housing and just growing the population like an absolute science experiment. And the, so, and the scary thing is, I, I just don't just don't know if it's going to stop. To be honest with you, can because the stuff the federal government's done, um, you know, it mm. signed these two migration packs with India, uh, which we don't really know know what it's about. But basically, you've got a country of 1.4 billion people with unemployment rate that's at 10 percent, like way worse than us. Um, basically, you know. Massive population of people are aged under under thirty, so about two thirds of one point four billion people are aged under thirty, and youth unemployment there's about twenty percent. It's like, well, of course they're going to want to get out of that situation, and they're going to want to come to places like Australia. And Albo signed those two migration packs earlier this year, which basically says that we will recognise any qualification for work or work and migration purposes that are um, gained in India to be equivalent to Australia. There's also handing out. Um, you know, eight-year post-study work visas to Indians as well as uh, five-year study visas. So, you know, you just wonder, well, we've got this ginormous country which is quite impoverished and obviously have very high unemployment. Of course, they're going to want to come to Australia. And, you know, you've got a country of 26 million, 1.4 million. You can see see what what could potentially happen. Uh, 1.4 billion, actually. 1.4 billion, sorry. Did I say million? Yeah, I meant billion. 500 times larger, not... (laughs) So, Um, I mean, look... So, yeah. so, so is this is this level of immigration is this going to become permanent? 
that that's the question like so, uh, it, it's a real worry yeah okay so uh let me just put some numbers to it so you said uh in the 90s 15 years up to 2005 the ballpark was uh about 90,000 per year so the population in australia was, yeah. population in australia in 1996 was 18 million so we're talking about half of 1% net migration a year in that period and what we're looking at today uh since 2006 was it uh we've yeah. been at 200 and something so 220 and in the 15 220 years, okay so the population in 2014 was 23 million so we're looking at one percent so a doubling of the immigration rate in that 15 year pre-covid period mm-hmm. and then in the last 12 months it's been what 500 uh, there so <laughs> that's another doubling again so we've gone from half a percent in the 90s up to 2005 then we've had one percent sort of the 15 years prior to COVID, 2005 to um, 2020, and now we're at 2%. <laughs> and yeah, well, so not- that's quite that's quite a jump. Do you really think the 2% will be sustained? Or do you no, think no, that's but I mean, a combination of a bit of... But do you think yeah. it'll be sustained above that 1% that, of the previous 15 years, which is also quite high internationally and historically? Well, see, I, I don't, I don't look at it in percentage terms. I don't think percentage is a great way to look at it because, because if you held it, so if you ran a one percent immigration program forever, right? Obviously, as the population grows, that size just continually grows exponentially. So, for example, you know, if if Australia, if Australia hits the um, intergenerational reports population forecast, which is basically in forty years by twenty sixty three, uh, we're supposed to be uh, about forty and a half uh, million. So 1% of that means we'll be doing 400,000 migrants permanently a year. Um, now, right now, we're doing more than that, obviously, but that that would be 1%. And yeah. so it just means, and then if we then once we get to 60 million, we'll be doing 600,000 migrants a year, net, net migrants. And it's just, so what that, what that assumes is exponential growth. And obviously, in a nation like ours, which has got water supply problems and, you know, pretty fragile environment, um, I prefer to look at the number rather than the, uh, than the percentage because... Right. A fixed percent means exponential growth. That's just by definition, because as it grows, yeah. you keep it keeps going up. So every year, the level gets higher and higher, but it's still only one percent. Um, yeah. So, so I, even I, I mean, yeah. even in percentage terms, though, it's it's off the charts. So in level oh, terms, it's even more extreme. So you mentioned before about these new visas to from India. That seems like there's a political desire to sustain these high levels. Can you maybe just paint us a picture of what? you know, what proportion of immigration comes through what sort of visa streams? Like, how do people get here? There's obviously a bunch of regulations. And the real policy question is, how do we craft those regulations to allow certain people and not others? What's what's the picture? I mean, we have all these international students. Are they immigrants? Or uh, is it just the work visas? Um, how, what's what's the sort of big picture take on on the type of visas and how people end up here so australia operates two separate systems and one's capped and one's completely uncapped so the capped one's obviously the permanent migration uh intake and that's currently set at one hundred ninety thousand a year uh for the non-humanitarian intake and then the humanitarian intake's about to go up to twenty thousand. um they've also duked the stats in that they're now including uh pacific uh island visa but it's not it's it's separate again so that's another three three thousand but it's you know so basically, the, the permanent non-humanitarian is about one hundred ninety-three thousand when you account for that, um, 
And then you got the humanitarian about 20. And, and that level's capped and it's dominated by so-called skilled migrants, which I put quote marks because that's a bit spurious in itself, as uh, you and I both know. Um, but so about two thirds of the permanent intake is skilled migration. Uh, one, one third is, um, you know, family reunions mostly. So that's if, you know, partners come across. Also, we, we give, give out about 8,000 elderly parent visas, which they should abolish, uh, which effectively are to old people. So, you know, you can basically, um, it's capped at 8,000. You can bring over 8,000 people who are elderly, retired, et cetera. Um, so there's all, there, there's a lot of different categories, but at least that, that part of it's capped. The problem is, you've got this temporary migration system, which is completely uncapped. And as of September, according to the Department of Home Affairs, we had 2.3 million temporary migrants in the country. That's not including uh, visitor visas. So if you take out the tourism part, mm -hmm. 2.3 million, which are pretty much all got work rights. So that's um, about one in 10 of the total population. One in 11, yeah. One in, one in 11 mm -hmm. to be exact. And and effectively, that is dominated by the student visa um, mm -hmm. route. So we had... Uh, over six, that's 650,000 um, student net student visas on issue in September, um, about another 200,000 uh, graduate visas. So that's once they finish their studies, they can basically get on this graduate visa for several years and work in any job they want. So effectively, one in 30 Australians was on either a graduate visa or a, or a student visa. Um, and just to give you an idea about the levels of that, so I said 2.3 um, million as of September. Mm -hmm. That's actually 400,000 more than the 2019 peak before COVID. So this whole notion that we've got this immigration catch-up going on is completely spurious. Like we've so, got so we caught up stock. and added 400,000 in about 800,000. That's it, and 600,000 in a year, and that's basically mm -hmm. what's driven this net overseas migration. So the way it works is most people come over as temporaries first, and then they transition, and then you've got 190,000, 193,000 plus 20,000 humanitarians. Um, so what's that, 213 or something, thousand of those then get to become permanent residents. But the problem with it is we often don't, um, if, if you don't, you know, succeed in those, we don't send them home. They just end up hanging around, switching visas, try and, try and get a bridging visa, um, try and extend their stay. So We've got this stock of temporaries that just keeps growing as well as this really high permanent visa thing. And obviously the more permanency mm. you hand out, that actually increases the stock of migration because they don't leave, right? So temporaries, yeah. in theory, should eventually so most temporary, stock, but they should leave. <laughs> yeah, most of them leave, but the, the number here the at any one time years. continues to grow. <laughs> oh, it's, mate, it's swelling through the roof like we have not seen before. So, and... Um, you know, and 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 the the composition of our migrations also changed. I mentioned before that obviously we've got this Indian migration pact, and that hasn't really kicked in yet. But India is now our biggest source nation uh, because through the student route, uh, we're also you know, getting a lot of uh, from Nepal and these other sort of poor um, developing nations who are coming through the student visa route. And um, you know, viewers have probably seen a lot of the reports about these ghost colleges that have opened up all around. You see them in Melbourne around the city. Yeah. And stuff. It's all these bogus degrees. And it's just basically a way to come in here on the cheap and then um, basically qualify for a student visa and then you end up just working anyway. And then yeah, try that, and extend your stay, et cetera. The universities are interesting in all this because they are essentially, they've through this visa system, they've almost been given a license to sell residency to Australia, haven't they? And so I find it interesting that now there's this tax on international student fees being considered. And I do wonder whether, you know, why why 
uh, the government just doesn't sell citizenship, you know, if it's such a good idea, just, just sell, sell it off. But it, it also seems to be a bit global, like Canada's having the same discussions. Uh, the UK, do you think it's a, do you think that is coincidental or do you think the same political pressures are in each of those countries to try and maybe avoid a recession by pumping up the number of people and keeping spending up? How would you speculate on why this pattern seems common to this handful of countries? It's, it is weird, isn't it? So basically all the Anglo countries other than the US are effectively pursuing the same policy at the same time. So so Canada's actually, you know, if you think it's, it's extreme here, Canada's even more extreme. So Canada's, um, you know, in the year to March or June, uh, the most recent data that came out, Basically, they had 1.2 million net overseas migration, and that's on a country that's, that's uh, 40 million. So it's a rate that's way higher than us, and obviously in absolute number terms, it dwarfs what we've done. Um, and basically, they, they've got all the same problems. They've got a massive rental crisis. They've got this, uh, you know, it's all been driven by the international students is, is the biggest driver. Um, lots of concern about sort of sham colleges and sort of sham visas and blah, blah, blah. It's all the same sort of stuff. New Zealand now is a little bit behind us, but they've now got record net overseas migration as well. And hilariously, there's now all this concern about a housing crisis in Auckland, um, mm. which is probably a discussion for another day, but you know, you and I know about that pretty closely. Yeah. Um, and, and the UK is also, I mean, UK in terms of percentage terms is way below us because it's got a much bigger population, but they're also got in number terms record immigration it does make you wonder what, what what's driving this and yeah. the hilarious thing is the Albanese government uh one of the excuses they used during the jobs and skills summit etc to basically ramp up this immigration is that we're competing for migrants against Canada um huh. interesting so it's, it's it's kind of like well why why do we need to compete with them and like so they created this false narrative that we've got a this immigration catch-up to do um and b that we're you know we've, we've got this global race for talent, which is another term the Great Institute uses all the time, which is just bananas. Like, it's just a stupid term, but so, it's made up to sort of fit this narrative. And then, so on, and I'm not at Canada's using it against us as well. I would <laughs> yeah. so, That's yeah. right. It's a race to the bottom. It's a, uh, yeah, it's an arms race. Um, I guess on that, you know, a lot of people would argue that, um, you know, educated young people from other countries, the best and brightest, uh, if they have an additional option to move to Australia and it, they think it's the best choice for them, isn't that welfare enhancing, like, um, for them and us? Like, you're almost saying that trade is bad um, when it comes to people. How do you respond? Like, don't we want young and smart people here? Yeah, In this, I mean, isn't that what the yeah. argument about competing for talent is about? What, what's your well, I mean, take on that? Yeah, well, I mean, the the, the problem with it is, though, I, I'd be all for that if um, if it if we actually were competing for talent. So, you know, the the actual outcomes from the graduates that we're getting from overseas are actually very poor in terms of um, you know their their basically uh, their labour force participation. So we've got you know they 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 work a lot less full time than what local graduates do. They're paid way less. Um, pretty much, you know, across the board, the outcomes are very poor. Um, I'd be all for going for quality. Like I, I personally think Australia's whole immigration system should be based around a much smaller number, but extremely high quality. But unfortunately, you know, the the temporary, the, the permanent temporary so-called skilled migrants we get here get paid a fair bit less than the median full-time salary here. And that's, and the median full-time salary is dragged down 
by obviously unskilled people. So it's not really yeah. even a skilled salary, yet our skilled migrants and our, you know, student graduates and all these people are paid well under that level. So it sort of makes you think, well, are we really getting skilled people? Yeah. You know, are we are we competing for talent? It sounds like there's a trade-off there. It's a bit like universities, right? The more people you try and get through universities, the lower the standards have to be to get everyone through. And I think that seems like the same conundrum in this migration. If you want the best, but you're trying to maximize the quantity, you're gonna have to just let some, you know, not very skilled or qualified people in as well. I mean, it seems and, similar, and can I just also add that the um, that the the reason why Australia gets so many international students is because we offer the most generous work rights in the world. So our post study work rights and also our ability to work while you're here, and um, you know also our English language uh, requirements when you come here, etc. They're all incredibly generous, and that's effectively mm-hmm. the reason why a we're obviously a very high standard of living developed country. So that that makes makes us very desirable. But then also you can come here and work pretty much instead of work, instead of studying, which is kind of unique. Uh, I mean, Canada does it as well, but ours are way more generous than anywhere else, uh, our uh, work rights. Um, so effectively, you know, we've kind of created this system where the the education, the international education industry is really a migration industry. Um, yeah. They're not coming here. Well, some do. I mean, I'm generalizing here, obviously. But, um, you know, by and large, the whole industry is centered around migration, not around studying to get a degree and then going home and using your uh, your your yeah, skills, which skills. is really yeah, and the whole thing the whole thing about welfare enhancing it's also you're also stripping young people from developing nations who probably need those young people. So there's also yeah. a bit of a um, you know uh, a bit of in- inequality aspect there as well. Like I, I you know I don't think that's particularly if, if you're basically pulling the young people there to basically work in lesser jobs here and not use their the the skills they've created and then they've been underemployed here. Is that better than them going home? And enhancing their own economies, um, who actually need those skills, I think it's actually pretty. You know, it could potentially be globally welfare destroying. I think the system that we're running. Um, yeah, anyway, I've, had, it, it, I've had this discussion before, right? And um, I said, well, is you know where, what location? If you if you trained up the next doctor for humanity. Uh, thinking of Earth as a whole, in what location would you put that doctor uh, to maximise their benefit to others from having those skills? And arguably, it's not Sydney. (laughs) And it's quite likely a country uh, uh, in Central Africa or in Asia that that is a source country of many doctors in Australia. (laughs) And so on the one hand, we're attracting these doctors trained abroad and on the other hand, we have doctors without borders going back to those countries because there's a shortage of doctors uh, to volunteer and and provide services. So I, I I think that's a real issue, right? Imagine um, you're Thailand and you're you've been trying to develop. You're working real hard. You're training doctors and engineers like crazy, but Australia opens the door and says any doctor or engineer from Thailand can come here, right? <laughs> as a as a development program in that country you'd be like hey you're you're take you're, you're taking our best and brightest you're undermining our our progress here um but some people want to dismiss that and and i i get it you know people should more choice is better for the individual than less but i think as a policy matter it's it's something that needs to be considered for sure can i just ask you leith you've been talking about immigration for 10 years as you say how often do you get called racist 
Oh, all the time, mate. <laughs> um, yeah, look, look, look. Unfortunately, all the time. I'm not going to name the individual who does it the most, but he's he, he's a well-known person who's also attacked you, Ken, uh, as we both know. I won't name him, but um, yeah, look, it just unfortunately. So you, you why cannot, why you, isn't it racist to talk about immigration policy? Because 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 when I whenever I talk about it, typically it's about numbers, right? Because my, my whole issue is I'm not against immigration. I know you're not against immigration. And we wouldn't even be having this discussion if the federal government hadn't just decided on a whim to ramp it in the mid-2000s. Like, I, I never thought it was a problem. Never even, you know, it never even came to my thinking. I always thought it was a good thing until, you know, several years into this immigration boom when they decided to more than double it in the mid-2000s. And because and I live in Melbourne... I've seen the results because suddenly the traffic congestion went through the roof. Obviously, you know, the, the whole housing situation is a joke. It's even worse in Sydney. Um, and it's not just in terms of prices and stuff. It's, it, it's basically when I grew up in Melbourne, um, you know, I grew up in a, I just went to a regular, you know, state school, whatever, right. And uh, primary school and all that sort of thing. And I, only one of my friends that I knew of, and he had, he was a, you know, uh, he had a single mum lived in a, it was just him and his mum lived in a flat. And another friend of mine with a single mum lived in a proper house and everything. And everyone else just lived in a house with a backyard. And that was just the normal thing. Now it's no longer the normal thing because Melbourne's grown from back then, you know, 2.8 million would have been back then to over 5 million. And we just don't have the space. And now it's like apartment living's become normal. Renting's become more normal. And I've just seen the, the dilution in quality of life. And this has happened primarily because the population's grown so quickly. And it takes forever to drive anywhere. It's just general quality of life stuff. Um, you know, you start impact onto a train if you want to take one. It's just general quality of life has been degraded. And I guarantee you, if, you know, the, the Melbourne uh, 2005 when I was at the, sorry, 2006 when I was at the um, Victorian Treasury, it might have been 2007, around that, that time, um, they, they were working on the Melbourne 2030 uh, policy framework. And they basically said that, uh, uh, you know, by 2030, Melbourne's population was going to be less than, than what, it, what it ended up being, like 2017. Oh, wow. Because the population, because back then we weren't expecting to go through this massive immigration boom. Um, it hadn't, the, the penny hadn't dropped yet. And, you know, if you look at the intergenerational report, the first one in, in 2001, Australia passed the 2050 projection, um, like, in about 2020. So it's just, mm. we 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 we've, <laughs> we basically got there 40 years early or something or, you know, whatever it is, maybe it was 2060 um, projection, but it was just so many decades early because the government back then, they modeled it on 90,000 year net overseas migration, which had been yeah. the average. And then it obviously just got ramped up. And then, um, you know, we've seen it right across Sydney, Melbourne, probably Brisbane where you are. Just the, the infrastructure has not kept pace. And, you know, arguably the housing doesn't get pace. And then there's environmental issues. The state of the environment report that gets released every five years, it's basically the, in a generational report of the environment warns that the environment's getting wrecked. Um, you know, every one of them says it's getting worse for the environment. And one of its biggest risks is population growth. And, you know, it was only uh, three or uh, four years ago that Sydney almost ran out of water. Um, mm. well, you know, it got down, the dams got down to 20%. And um, what's going to happen next time we have a, you know, a long drought and Sydney's got an extra million people. Um, what? We're going to have to build a battery of diesel plants and <laughs> somehow pump it 30 kilometers inland uphill to western sydney which is where they're dumping most of the migrants like it's just all these practical issues um just do not uh compute and the, the, yeah it, the, the, it doesn't add up this population growth we're running because nothing can keep up with it and then the do result you, is obviously reduced living standards 
Yeah. So I guess imagine cast your mind back to the um, late fifties. Um, it, it's it's you know imagine you're living then, and you know resources are scarce because you're just adapting to coming out of the war that took a lot of resources. Um, it seems also like you know the same arguments would have applied then, but. You're also saying in the 90s, things were good. Um, is there a sort of levels rate distinction here? Like we had the baby boom. That was a lot of population growth and seemed okay in retrospect. I mean, I don't know what it was like. Um, we've had periods of high growth in the 70s as well. Um, can't we just build enough to keep up? Isn't that what we've done historically? Or am I you know, playing devil's advocate? What am I missing, I guess? Well, I mean, just look at the empirical evidence. Uh, I mean, that... The fact of the matter is, we were keeping up fine. Um, so if you go, if you think back to Sydney, you know, during the Sydney Olympics in 2000, I mean, I think that was almost peak Sydney back then. Yeah, uh, maybe just because the Olympics was on, but also, you know, livability and all that, and, and the population was growing at a sort of slow and steady rate. Everything was keeping up. I think the optimal rate is just basically the pre 2005 level of migration. It worked. Yeah. It worked pretty well for 60 years, and and that seems to be the natural rate that that did work. It's just that when they ramped it up, it stopped working. And the whole thing about, you know, in 1950, Australia was 8 million people, right? So we obviously had, we didn't need to populate. We weren't big enough. But I'd argue that a Sydney and Melbourne now of over 5 million each, uh, what's Brisbane is probably getting close to three. A couple of million, yeah. Uh, it depends. Yeah, well, I mean, it, well, especially if you count, count the Gold, Gold Coast. Coast. Um, mm. Yeah, it'd be over 3 million. So it, I just think both Sydney and Melbourne got above their optimal size. Um, it's now becoming, we're getting diseconomies of scale down here because if you need to build any new infrastructure now, you've got to basically do it underground. Yeah. Um, so if you need to build a new road, you've got to tunnel it and that, that costs a hell of a lot of money. Whereas when back in the 50s, when Melbourne was probably yeah, a million and a half, maybe, we had tons of space, uh, easy to do greenfield development, et cetera. Um, but it's got to the stage now where the, um, the sprawl's massive, everything's built mm. out, if you want to just keep adding more and more people, it actually becomes harder. And then, of course, you've got the natural barrier of water supply, uh, which Australia doesn't have enough water in the you know southeast to accommodate, yeah. accommodate this level of population. If you average it out over the side, obviously about three mm. La Nina, which record rainfalls, that helps obviously. But if you do it over <laughs> over a twenty year period and you average it out, we don't have enough water um, to to sustain the sorts of populations that are predicted, which is forty million um, wow. by 40 and a half million by uh, 2063 in 40 years. So we're supposed to add, um, you know, just huge amounts of people in, you know, 14 million people. That's a Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, Adelaide in 40 years. So I guess, uh, I guess what, from, from what I'm hearing, yeah, it sounds like we should send everyone to Canberra who gets here because that's where the gains, it's easier to accommodate more people quicker because um, it's somewhat, a somewhat underdeveloped uh, city. <laughs> Uh, compared Mate, to I would love that because I guarantee you the 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 charlatans who push this 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 um, this policy would then be impacted directly. And I also think we should, if you want to keep doing this, let, let's build a high rise in uh, you know in in Willara, uh, Mossman, <laughs> all the Sydney rich Sydney eastern suburbs because yeah, they're they're the they're they the uh, they're the elites who push this policy. The high rise the high rise Harry Triggerboss of the world, etc. Well, how about we just stuff them. We stuff all the people in those places. We build high rises right across the coast, you know, on the beaches and that sort of stuff, and they can feel the pressure from it. And I guarantee, if we if we said we're going to do that, and they couldn't object, which they can, and they we won't do it because <laughs> they're powerful. But um, they would suddenly go, "Hang on, 
I don't want this anymore. And the other thing is we need to do is um, another problem with this policy is Treasury has become almost like a big business lobby rent seeker on this because the federal government collects 80% of the tax revenue, right? The states collect and local governments collect 20%. So we've got this, um, the, the, the incentives aren't aligned. So the yeah. federal government loves big Australia immigration because it boosts company taxes and, and, uh, uh, and also tax. personal income taxes. Yeah. More people, so they get the gains, but the costs are pushed onto the state governments. Because yeah, it's they the schools, hospitals, you know, roads and all that. that they've the got to do all the public provide. services, yeah. infrastructure. And then the way they get around is they flog everything off. They prioritise everything to try and get the money in quickly. And then you end up with Transurban taking over Sydney with 20 toll roads to build, because they have to build all the infrastructure. So 20 years ago, you could drive around Sydney and only pay tolls on two roads and you could pretty much get around toll free if you wanted to. Now you've got Transurban pulling money out of your wallet wherever you drive. And that's actually a dilution of living standards. Um, but the costs don't fall on the federal government. So the federal government keeps pushing this policy. And what we need is a guarantee. If there's some way we could say, the, the Treasury has got to pay 100000 to the states for every migrant that settles in Victoria, New South Wales, yeah. Queensland to cover their lifetime infrastructure costs. I guarantee you, Treasury would not be as gung-ho about running this big Australia. You think, you think they the policy would just get the games, they'd have to pay the yeah. Things would change quickly, uh, I guess, also if they had to live uh, in the neighbourhoods of all the elected politicians uh, and, and radically um, densify those neighbourhoods. So here's a question then. Australia essentially has an open border with New Zealand in terms of work rights and, and migration. And of course, Victoria, Queensland and New South Wales have open borders except for COVID uh, lockdowns. Um, We're all coming why, up to you, mate. <laughs> why isn't this bad? I mean, I, I've got all these, I'm in Brisbane and all the Southerners are coming up here, uh, bringing their incomes, um, bidding up prices uh at least temporarily for housing and and generally requiring uh, you know we, queensland's having a massive build out of schools and hospitals at the moment um why is that okay but more of an open borders to the rest of the world not how do you reconcile those differences well australia's a nation state right so we're one country <clears throat> so you so you can't restrict movement between different states i mean unless you want to go back to federation and make it state-based again well i'm guessing um, if it's why wouldn't it be better if we did that if we're also going to restrict the national border um <laughs> okay well i mean look 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 i i'm a i'm a firm believer in nation states i believe in nation states um australia is australia this is our border um uh, and and you know i don't i don't sound like you know john howard here but it's up to us to decide who comes in you know all that sort of stuff uh and and the whole thing is it's like the politicians are supposed to represent their constituents, which are the Australian people, and they're supposed to run policy yeah. for the benefit of the Australian people. Now, now, if the open borders people seem to think anyone should be able to live in Australia if you want, well, that's fine. If you want that, expect to have an Australia of 150 million very quickly and to basically be living in favelas because that's what will happen and we're going to run out of water and basically living standards are going to be destroyed. The natural environment in Australia is going to get destroyed. Australia's got a very yeah. delicate environment. And I think politicians need to safeguard that, um, be yeah. custodians of that. Um, that. That's my view. And, you know, yeah. um, the, the whole notion of, oh, open, you know, there's this view of some people go, we've got to take a global view of everything, right? So, um, you know, someone in some country somewhere else's welfare is just as important as an Australian. Um, to me, that I don't want to sound selfish, but I'm an Australian, so I care about Australians first, right? Um, yeah. And if you want to take that, 
thinking to the extreme, you would never build another school in Australia, you'd never build another hospital because you get far more global benefit from building Bangladesh or some other place that's a lot poorer and needs it more than we do. Yeah, exactly. So how far, how far do you want to take this logic? Yeah. You know I what think, I'm saying? Yeah, for me, <laughs> the difference is this, right? If if you're within a polity, like within a, a, a country that, um, you know, is a sort of unit of... Um, uh, welfare enhancement like we all sort of do things for the collective good at this level then the the internal migration is not such a big deal because if someone leaves sydney and comes to brisbane they're still paying pu- paying into the pot that can be yes. shared with the states at their new location so it might be the fact they need a new school here but that means the expansion of the school in sydney can be delayed and through all these funding mechanisms, their share sort of, sort of gets relocated geographically. So, you know, it's a bit like moving from one council to another in Sydney. Um, you know, you sort of take take your income and, and impose costs elsewhere, but someone else will switch back to you, switch back to the yeah. other spot. So it's a sort of... And also there's a sort GST of, um, distributed all that sort yeah, of stuff. Yeah, well. so, so the costs are not, like, additional. Um, they are just relocated, just like the person. Yeah, whereas the population growth as a whole is an additional cost to the polity in aggregate. Uh, and I think um, the sort of the open borders people I, I mean i get their welfare argument we're all humans and and it's at some point we have to acknowledge that you know we can't just do what's good for australians and and, and sacrifice lives in other countries for it um but i think the political reality of how we're organized into states means that the the free movement within states sort of pre- insulates australia's australians for, from uh, it's a topic I spoke to Tim Helm about in a previous podcast from this spatial e- equilibrium of equalizing quality of life between places. If we have a border, it can allow us to have a higher quality of life than uh, other places in the world. So I, I think that makes total sense. Leith, I want to I want to wrap it up now. Um, is there anything uh, you'd like to add that we've missed or where can our listeners uh, find your writing or, or hear more of your views on this topic and any other economic topics? Yeah, well, uh, yeah, thanks for having me, Cam. Uh, first of all, um, if you want to read my views on this, with this topic and others, go to macrobusiness.com.au. Um, I pretty much write about the immigration, uh, you know, debate almost daily, and I have for several years, to be quite honest. And um, you know, wh- whether that's in relation to the rental crisis or just policy more generally, uh, that that's probably the best place to go. Um, so yeah, just macrobusiness.com.au. Uh, I'm often uh, I've got to warn you some of my some of my uh, topics and articles are a bit spicy. So often I'll I'll take down a you know probably a, a spruker. Right. Uh, I think that's uh, so. that's perfect for our, the listeners of fresh economic thinking. Thanks again for your time, Leith. Let's wrap it up. Cheers. Thanks again. Yeah.